Hey, Gavin. Hey, Louie. How are you doing on this little overcast day? Well, I'm I'm feeling nice. I well, no, I'm I'm feeling awful because I didn't sleep at all last night. But I had a good reason, which okay. is that I'm now one halfway through the vaccine. Oh my god! Congratulations, you're a winner, baby. Can oh, you believe you. it? Wow, wow. But how are you doing? Because it's very rude of me not to ask. I'm good. I'm you know, uh, me and Derek are cleaning the apartment, packing up, doing a little spring cleaning. Um, I have Still a little grape juice because we're it's it's uh, the snow. Where is she? She's gone. And I don't want her to come <laughs> back. OK, she came in like a wrecking ball, ruined my life for that one week. And now she's gone and good. Goodbye to her. <laughs> Michelle Branch. Welcome, everyone. Hi, this is The Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast in which we take a film subject such as an actor, director, or a mini-genre, and we give you a nice little history, we wrap it up in a bow, and then we say, uh, this part of the gift you may not like, and this part of the gift, yeah. you're really you're gonna, you're gonna like it. It's for you. You might say, an avocado, thanks. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and other times it's like, fuck yeah, an avocado. <laughs> uh, so the reviews are mixed. Often. Absolutely. Uh, but, um, but we are not alone. We're we channeling alone. the spirits. We're bringing in yeah, the four corners. <laughs> exactly. Calling them. And we're bringing in an expert, actually, this week. I'm yes. calling you an expert. You don't have a choice. What are, <laughs> what are you going to do? Tell me no. Uh, so please welcome to the stage, Manish. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so I'm like really, really excited to be here. Well, we both have been on your podcast and yes. pod to be you and it was just like natural like it was time to bring you into our um lovely digital home um to talk about more movies and and you know maybe not like as romantic movies as you're used to on your podcast but still a lot of feeling i would say a lot a lot of feeling yeah, yeah. oh so much feeling um before we jump into it though we have some old business to to wrap up uh our last episode we talked about the icon, Miss Audrey Hepburn, um, and what a treat that was. Every person I talked to about that episode was like, holy shit, I had no idea her life was so fucking, you know, intense and hard. Like, a lot of people were like, had no idea about growing up through the war um, and just like the real struggles that she went through. Everyone just kind of assumes that she was hot and successful her entire life um, <laughs> like me yeah it's, it's like a so burden crazy. really it's so hard when like you're not hot and successful all the time um <laughs> but we asked you guys to go online and vote for your favorite audrey Hepburn movie and the results are in and honey they were real mixed the nun story which is my pick came in last place with seven percent two for the road which was our guest chelsea's pick uh came in at 20 percent other I want to say not surprising because I guess all of her best known films are other. Our picks were so fucking weird. Uh, <laughs> came in at 24%. We had so many people saying uh, a lot of different things like Roman Holiday, My Fair Lady, Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, the, the classics, if you will. And we, d- then, we did get one for the children's hour and I was like, good on you. Good on you. Yeah. And then your pick, Gavin, Wait Until Dark, came in at 49%. Maybe a, a surprise win. Were you? What, what's going on oh. here? Oh, fully fucking surprised, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely thought I was like, okay, so this is others winning this time, and that's fine. And uh, I know Manishi wrote in and said, "My Fair Lady." So I, I just totally, I was like, oh, there's no way I'm winning this one, which is fine. You know, I don't go into this, I don't go into this to make friends. <laughs> but <laughs> well, you're used to not having any. So. Exactly. <laughs> it's in your Twitter handle. It's true. So I'm gonna die someday, and. <laughs> 
but yeah, it makes me really happy that apparently a lot of people have seen Wait Until Dark. I think Wait Until Dark's really, you know, just a, it's a it's a masterclass performance. I don't think it's an easy performance by her by any means. And she also has to do something very different than what you're normally used to, which is be frightened the entire time or 90% of the time. And she does it so well and she pulls it off with such... Um, I don't know, surprising grace, which I guess mm. shouldn't surprise you because she's so graceful everywhere else. But right. yeah, it's a it's a good movie. Uh, Manish, I know you responded in our Twitter thread about what your faves are. Is there anything you want to expand on your uh, uh, experience, your knowledge of Audrey Hepburn? Yeah, I mean, I'm really, uh, I'm really glad that you both uh, did that episode with with Chelsea because. Um, I feel like Audrey Hepburn doesn't get enough credit for like being an actual like good actor. I feel like she she's become such a I don't know meme or like figure that yeah. um, you know I feel like it gets forgotten. So I'm really glad that your picks were these like really intense performances that she had done. Um, I think my personal favorite is My Fair Lady. I mean, I grew up with that movie. I've seen it like a thousand times. Um, I I pretty much have it memorized, so um, <laughs> I. But and I actually do re- really enjoy that movie. I think it's really really great. But uh, I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite of hers. Yeah. she's been in so many so many great movies. Like Roman Holiday is, I think, a perfect romantic comedy. Absolutely. Um, what I you talking about My Fair Lady makes me remember that the part that I love the most was who's like the hot guy that's trying to court her. And he's like this singing outside of her like window because he's in love with her. He's not yeah, like the Freddy. Old... Yeah. Freddy. I'm like, his songs slap. He's super romantic. I'm like, what's his... going on with you, Freddie? His song is my favorite song. Uh, the yeah. street where you live. Gavin, do we have any other old business or is it time to dive right in? Let's get into it. Let's get into that deep end. I'm going to drop my phone the way I just did. Mm, thank yeah. you so much. That's that's the rim shot. Um, Manish, why don't you tell us why you have summoned us here today and what you have brought for um, the listening gals abroad? Yeah, I came on this podcast to talk about one of my main favorite guys, Mr. Ang Lee. He's uh, one of my favorite, favorite filmmakers uh, ever I've seen every movie of his in the theater since Hulk and um, his a lot of his movies like Sense Sensibility, Life of Pi, Brokeback Mountain, um, The Ice Storm, like they've just have become like major favorites for me. Uh, Wedding Banquet, uh, Eat Drink Man Woman, like for me, he's one of those filmmakers where I'll like follow him into battle, you know, because <laughs> like whatever he does, I'm on board, you know, because. I think like he's so he's such an interesting guy. Um, he's so such a curious filmmaker. You know, he's done so many different movies and so many different genres. And um, I think he just wants to like hop into a new world and play with it, do do his own take on it. You know, uh, like Hulk, which is very much an Ang Lee movie. Um, even it's like it's so weird to watch that movie now um, since like the MCU is like so big and so like distinguishable as like a property watching the Hulk now is crazy. And this past month I've been like rewatching all of his movies and um, I'm just like every movie I was like, Oh my God, like English really good. <laughs> You're like, you know what? For high frame rates, that's for me. Okay. Bitch. Yeah. Everything I watch now, 124. That's it. I mean, honestly, it's the only way to watch a movie these days. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's like, I'm just like, I'm on board for him. I think he's a really, um, I think he's just a really 
cool guy. Like, he's funny, even though he's like, his movies are so serious, but like, he's like funny. He's like, he seems like a, like a genial guy. Like, he's, he's like married to, I think, some scientist or something yeah. for like yeah. 50 years or whatever. So I'm like, he just seems so like, not that, um, not the cliche of like the big, you know, directors who are like, totally. you know, so pretentious and like hostile or whatever, you know, or like bro y. Um, like, Ang Lee is just like, He's just a guy who makes movies that are really good. He's a fucking cool guy. I yeah. love that. It makes me think, you know, when I was watching uh, his stuff and reading about him, like, two things came to mind. Like, one, there's, like, the obvious, like, outsider um, narrative or theme that he brings to all of his movies. He said yeah. that he's always felt like a natural outsider. He feels most comfortable being an outsider. But then also just, like... The technician. His movies are so technically like wonderful, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not even I'm not even a fucking like knowledgeable person on that stuff. But you cannot <laughs> you cannot look at Life of Pi and be like, hmm, that looks easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the even fun- with something like Brokeback Mountain, I, I was like, okay, even this, like the technical aspects of getting all those fucking sheep out of that mountain and shit. I was like, that is fucking insane. It looks, it's his movies are beautiful. The funny thing is, is I've listened to him in interviews basically be like, I'm not a technical guy. I'm not a technical person, as I've said many, many times. And that, that's not going to change, <laughs> even if I wanted to. It's, it's emotions, how you look into emotion with new uh, uh, medium. You know, I don't, he's like, I know what I like, but. It, it's called perfection. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just like, really? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, if not you, girl, who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, he doesn't have the reputation of, like, a Fincher or Nolan or right. Tarantino or any of those guys who are just, like, like their brand is, like, being, like, you know, Mr. 1000 Takes. But he doesn't seem the kind of guy that, like, holds his actors hostage for, you know, hours and no. hours no. to, like, get one, like, you know, look right. And so I really appreciate that he can do all this, like, technical stuff and, you know, his, like, his movies are so precisely made, um, mm-hmm. but without all the, like, pretension of, you know, like, I gotta, like, this, this has to be the exact right angle, or this has to be the right exact color. Like, he just, like, gets it done, and he's so efficient. Yeah, yeah I think I think you also see that more and more the further his career has gone on, especially with yeah. playing with the newer technologies and stuff, because something like Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk, or Long Halftime Walk, you like they basically couldn't do more than one take, you know, on shots or they would do, you know, a couple, but it was because it was so precise and had to be so precise. That's what he sort of commanded of his performers and, and the people that make the film with him. And, and I think that's really interesting too, because yeah, he then, you know, he's sacrificing a little bit of being as precious as a lot of those other directors you named to, but in the end to get exactly what he wants. That's a very generous word, precious. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think all three of us could think, nice. of, <laughs> think of more weird things to say. <laughs> uh, with that all yeah. being said, I get is it a good time for us to get into our rewind? Absolutely. Ang Lee was born uh, in Taiwan. He was born in 1954. His parents had, is emigrated the right word, fled... Uh, mainland China. They moved from the Jiangxi province in mainland China to Taiwan following the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Um, his dad was a very strict, um, heavy on like Confucianism and conformity, very just a classic 
uh, patriarchal household. He's often said in interviews that he feels very Chinese, even though he grew up in Taiwan. And we're going to see a lot of that in his films as we go through life. Uh, he was a very, like, not studious child. <laughs> his dad was a principal at, like, the best uh, high school in town, right? How well, did he you... was my high school principal, and it was the one of the best high school in Taiwan. Yeah. So that's where I get all the repression and stuff. <laughs> I'm reading from a book. It's The Cinema of Ang Lee, and it was written by Whitney Crothers Dilly. So everyone in Taiwan has to take uh, exams in like middle and high school to prepare yourself for like a good university, essentially. And he failed twice uh, to the great shame of his father. And his father like let him know people who would come over and make sure not to bring up Ang because it was embarrassing for his parents to talk about him and instead would uh, just bring up his other brother who was like succeeding. Uh, instead of going to a, a great university in uh, Taiwan, he went to basically a vocational theater school. Uh, the National Taiwan University of Arts. And again, this was a great shame because it wasn't like you didn't need to pass these exams to get in. You can just enroll in it. Um, but his dad was like, fine, just fucking get out of here. <laughs> Go to this school. <laughs> and Aang said uh, when he he arrived and he was acting and he found like the first freedom and he felt really at home on stage. Uh, he said, quote, my spirit was liberated for the first time. Um, and so because he had grown up in a very academic household, he had never had that environment to like kind of express himself. He played Tom Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie. Um, he, you know, he was doing all these like very American plays. Uh, and he originally had entered the academy to avoid conscri conscription into Taiwan's uh, mandatory military service. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he was planning to take the college um, exam again to transfer, but he fell in love with drama. You know, you know that bitch? Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, his dad allowed him to stay at the academy um, basically saying, if you stay here, you have to promise me that you will go abroad to continue your studies. And he said, fine. Yeah, love that. Um, he did do his military, uh, you know, service for the Taiwanese military. And after that, he was, I think, 23 when he went to America. And everyone said, everyone loves to say how he went to NYU. But bitch, <laughs> he went somewhere first. It's called the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Ever yeah, heard of it? Champaign-Urbana. <laughs> Champaign-Urbana. <laughs> I've actually visited once. It's actually gorgeous. Gorgeous. Um, Lots of corn. So in 1978, he went uh, to Champagne. Or is it, oh, it's Urbana Champagne. We're saying it wrong, guys. Lol. I don't care. <laughs> no, what are they, they going to do? Write me a letter? Yeah. Cover me, Urbana Champagne people. Yeah. Contact us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he, he enrolled, though, as a theater major, and uh, he wanted to act. And what, what he realized is when he got there, he was um, significantly older than his classmates. He was 23 at the time. Most people who enter college are 18, 19. Um, and he just really didn't know English at all. It was very broken, very bad. Um, and so he couldn't learn scripts. He couldn't... Um, reading scripts and learning lines was very difficult for him. But what did happen, this is like a little sidebar, he ended up meeting his wife really early during this time. Part of like a, a international student club thing, they went to a baseball game together at Gary, in Gary, Indiana. And he sat next to the woman who would become his wife, Jane Lynn. And she says that he was just like 
talking and talking and talking that she fell asleep on the bus right over she woke up and he was still talking uh, <laughs> that's so cute uh it's very cute and they you know they met while he was an undergrad here and uh they would marry years later and have children and family they're still married today very very cute very rom comment pod to be you uh, <laughs> So during this time, he uh, started experimenting with directing rather than acting because he realized he could direct and and, and show his vision for how, what he wanted to be seen on the stage and on the screen um, with few words. I wanted to be an actor in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's three years of education. I was on stage, be a leading man. Um, no. And then I came to States <laughs> Good for times. further study. Yeah, yeah. And I was in Champaign, Illinois, and I didn't really speak English, so can't get into the actors' program. <laughs> I was in a one mime mime show, and then <laughs> and I was doing the lighting and you know, all that stuff, stage work, put on the stage and stuff. And I had to be a director. I got depressed and. And the young mind works. I didn't want to be a theater director. I think the best people go on stage and be actors. It's actor and audience. Nobody cares about stage director. They're, they're failed actors. That's how my mind works. <laughs> um, and I thought if I want to be a director, I want to be a movie director. I didn't want to be a stage director, so I applied uh, uh, film school. But for a long time, I thought I was a stage person. Right. Uh, that's why I feel very close with actors. Much like you, he realized that you don't have to be a performer to love drama. Thank you. (laughs) I'm the puppet master. Uh, So although he enjoyed acting, he threw himself into directing. He uh, directed a production of The Chairs. He studied the plays of Brecht, Pinter, Tennessee Williams, Eugene O'Neill. Um, and he says, quote, the look of Western theater struck me in a big way. I got very good at it. He graduated in 1980 with a degree in theater and theater direction. And after that's when he went to Tisch at NYU, where he got his master's degree in film production. Uh, he made a lot of student shorts uh, there. He famously worked on uh, Spike Lee's uh, like master's thesis, uh, Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop. And he was the assistant cameraman on that. In 83, he married Jane, who they she she was majoring in microbiology. And so she, yes, is a scientist. Um, and they, I believe, were like long distance for a little bit. She ended up getting her PhD in um, Urbana-Champagne, Champagne-Urbana, whatever the fuck. Um, <laughs> and eventually would come to New York uh, after she finished. Um, so during his time at NYU, uh Aang spent two years making A Fine Line, which was his master's thesis. He it, it was a story of a young Chinese girl and a roughneck Italian boy, which sounds a lot like the Chinese version of Brooklyn, you know, mm. which I'm into. I hadn't thought about that. I, I tried to find this. I truly did because it has aired before. It aired on uh, PBS's uh, Real 13, I believe. And... I just, I couldn't I couldn't find hide nor hair of it. It uh, won uh, the NYU's festival uh, awards for best director and best film, um, and was like Gavin said aired on PBS. Uh, so listeners, if any of you have seen *To Find Line*, know where she's living. Send her our way. Yeah. We want to know. Send um, me both a VHS copy and a VCR to play it on because I do not please. have that. <laughs> and we're not paying for shipping. Absolutely not. Nope. Don't don't don't. Um, 
in addition to winning this prize, it also kind of got word out about like this new fresh filmmaker. Um, and as he was, he had decided that he was going to move back to Taiwan. He wanted to make films in Taiwan. Um, but William Morris kind of, which is like a top film agency, got wind of this kid and said, Hey, let's like chat essentially. Ang Lee had no idea who William Morris was or what William Morris was. Um, and they convinced him that though to stay and try and like develop screenplays and work on films, unlike Spike Lee, who graduated and was like, I'm making shit left and right. <laughs> Ang Lee does not make a movie for six years. He has described this period of his life as developmental hell. He has uh, two kids during this time. Um, he's basically a house husband. Uh, his wife which I love. I'll, I'll yeah. be honest, and like I, I totally get it. If you were working towards something and you, you really want to be successful at it, having a setback that puts you back for an extended period of time—six years—is no small amount of time. But I love the fact that he was like, "Well, uh, you know, I'll take care of my family during this period, and and I'll do the, I'll do what a dad does." And I think that's pretty commendable. Yeah, and, and it really shows in his in his films because a lot of them are not only very, um, you know, set in like the, the domestic space of homes. I mean, there's so many scenes in his movies over kitchen tables or dining tables and family meals. So it really comes through how sharply observed those were because, you know, he was there for all of it. Family is important. I see family, uh, particularly the father figure, as an uh, extension of uh, a patriarchal society. Yeah. I think I'm uh, through father and family. I really examined uh, something we used to believe, but began not to. He was taking care of his family. His wife was, um, you know, paying the bills essentially. But again, this is this kind of like added. Um, I don't think maybe I I mentioned enough how much like shame he felt from his father for kind of embarrassing him for not going into a, quote, real profession. Um, but then on top of that, to like, this book mentions, kind of like in The Wedding Banquet, which we'll talk to about in a little bit, they got married in a civil union ceremony in New York um, to the disappointment of his family. They were very distraught about that. They were even more distraught that she was the one who was paying for all the bills. What happened was essentially that Ang Lee is very bad at pitching his movies. He was not good at it. Um, he has said that pitching movies sucks, which I understand. It wasn't until he was 36. It was not until he met uh, James Seamus um, and Ted Hope at Good Machine um, that they were like, oh, this guy clearly has talent and is good at what he does. He just is not good at playing the Hollywood game. I think uh, James Seamus says, boy, this guy can't pitch his way out of a paper bag. Um, he wasn't <laughs> pitching a movie. He was describing a movie he'd already made. He just needs someone else to realize it. So there's finally some like people in the, the Hollywood machine who are like interested. And in the meantime, he had entered two screenplays uh, into a contest held by the Taiwanese government. Um, they were trying to basically bolster the fledgling film industry there. He submits uh, Pushing Hands and The Wedding Banquet. Um, and the bedroom make bit he like put in just very willy nilly. It was something he had written. They win first and second place. <laughs> and he's like, oh shit. And that was the kind of breakthrough that he needed to really light the fire of his career. Aang was given $16,000 to make Pushing Hands into a film. Um, 
Taiwan's Central Motion Pictures Corporation put their support behind it and even gave him an extra $400,000 to make the movie. Uh, it was filmed entirely in New York. And it was kind of the classic, like what Manishi were saying earlier, this very domestic East meets West movie about a man and his Taiwanese father who's kind of moved in with his uh, American wife. Um, what did you guys think about Pushing Hands? I mean, I, I enjoy the movie. I think it's really well made. I think you can tell that it's the first film. A lot of the acting feels very stilted. Um, and I think the like the narrative kind of gets a little lost. And it's a kind of movie around like, man, I wish this would happen. And then that doesn't happen. So like if he had like written like rewritten a few more drafts or something uh but i mean his um his visual style i mean it's getting it's like almost fully formed i think even by his next two movies it's like a giant leap in you right. know in quality yeah i think you're right i think it's also interesting if you think about the like the position it's sort of in in the time it comes out so pushing hands is what um 91 and it's really coming at the early stages of that sort of 90s indie film renaissance, that sort yeah. of like, you know, you get like the Soderberghs towards the end of the 80s and you get like, unfortunately, Kevin Smith, like in the 94 with Clerks. And and what's interesting is I, I think that's these are a lot of directors who are sort of coming in and showing you a new way to make an indie film. And I think one of the things that maybe hurts Pushing Hands is it very much feels like, in terms of style, like an 80s film. It's sort of mired in that uh, late 80s Hollywood aesthetic, even though it is an indie film. And it feels very much like a first film. And I agree that he definitely has a style going in, but I don't think you really start to see it come to fruition until the wedding banquet and then especially in eat drink man woman you know it's it's training wheels so first of all fuck you both i love pushing hands okay <laughs> i liked it i mean i did i, as I a, really as i liked it too i mean yeah. i don't oh, i don't no, hate it at all i thought it was like great it. <laughs> you can you can be critical about things that you like sorry marvel <laughs> just, but but yeah that's the uh, and but i i do, i do think it's not as uh, you know it's not as up to snuff as some of the other stuff but i i think the plots there i think i can totally see why the script one kind of to what you were saying manish like there is definitely style but like to me it's like there's an immediate connection to like he has this way of connecting to characters you know and there's like this such emotional depth and uh yeah i don't know i think like maybe some of it is like maybe novelty just because i haven't seen a lot of movies like pushing hands and so seeing that and then for the time period, it just seems very special. But you're right. Going forward, you know, in 1993, I believe The Wedding Banquet comes out. The Wedding Banquet, which is a kind of similarly uh, East meets West uh, comedy drama between a gay couple this time. And uh, the gay couple, uh, the Taiwanese character marries a Chinese woman for a green card. There's a, It's a kind of comedy of manners. Uh, I... Remember watching this when I was like younger and being like, "Ooh, gays," <laughs> um, but like the movie is like very lightly into the gay stuff and more aggressively into the cultural kind of differences and going on. But also, oh, just remembering the ending with like the parents and just like coming like the reckoning. Yeah, wedding banquet's cute. I like her a lot. What I love about all three of these movies, but particularly the wedding banquet and um, Eat Drink Man Woman, is. Uh, 
like they're they're kind of like informally known as the father knows best trilogy um and what i love about that is like how much um these three movies subvert that concept of like father knows best like that you know 50s patriarchal thing of like you know the dad is the head of the household um because i think it's like not that like the kids are all wrong and the you know the dad is right or like the dad is so like behind and the kids are modern it's like there's so much nuance in that like modern versus like tradition conflict <laughs> and you know east versus west conflict like there's so much nuance there and there's a lot of like give and take and what i what i love about the wedding make with ending is that there's a way to have this sort of traditional nuclear family that includes like this thruple <laughs> right you yeah, know yeah, totally and there's like it's like they have they're um, rebuilding this narrative of like what it means to be a family and this whole movie is about that is about that concept of like you know what is this family and i love that at the end the dad in that movie is also like hey i've always known that you were my son's partner and but we can't tell the mom and it's like all this like and there's so, so much repression too of like who can tell what to who and and, you know, why can't we say this to this person because of tradition? And it's just so much like there's so much conversation about that conflict versus making it so broad or so definite of like, this is wrong. This is good. I was thinking when I was watching these, especially the Father Knows Best trilogy, uh, because he had a hand in writing all of these movies as well. Is Ang Lee in a in a way, is he Sirkian? And by that, I mean, for our audience, Douglas Sirk was... A filmmaker in the 40s and the 50s and he made a lot of uh, social commentary films but they were done in like a really you know like very repressed sort of way Todd Haynes does a lot of you know nods to Cirque in his films and but I was almost when I was watching these I was like oh there's like a lot of this tradition versus new talk in mm-hmm. these movies there's a lot of you know I think you both sort of hit on the head for the wedding banquet is not even necessarily really about them being gay, even though that's a huge plot point in it, but like, it's more about tradition versus, and that grabbed me in a way that I was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, this is taking a subject, but having it be a way to talk more about society and the, and the way society reacts to certain things. Right. I I don't, I don't, maybe I'm wrong. And maybe like, there's a smarter film, a scholar out there who'd be like no absolutely not yeah i mean he clearly is like reflecting i mean this idea of like what a good taiwanese son is supposed to be and do and how you're supposed to honor your parents and the traditions and stuff um but then like it's reflected back also because there are a lot of ways where you see the kids who are a either not living up to that or maybe being disrespectful like it, it, it does feel kind of like this um loop that goes back and forth between generations um it's worth noting the wedding banquet was made for like nothing and by um if you do the fucking math i don't know the words to say with this it was the most profitable movie that of that year even surpassing jurassic park because it was made for such a little money and it was such a huge hit um two dollars and it made four (laughs) (laughs) incredible incredible um pushing hands was a big hit in taiwan but it really wasn't seen anywhere else even though it was fully shot in new york the wedding banquet um was a big hit everywhere it won the golden bear at the 43rd berlin international film festival and was nominated for best foreign language film in both the golden globe and academy awards so it he had arrived on i will say like an international 
stage. Simon, well, what difference does it make? They don't even speak English. You know, way I can say whatever the fuck I want in my own fucking house, in my own fucking language. Simon, it's one on the widow's fault. I can express. Oh, I don't even care who or what he fucks. But talk about stupid, unsafe sex. Hey, 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 I'm talking to you. I mean, how much more of this do you expect me to put up? That I don't put down the fucking phone and listen to me. In 1994, we had Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Eat, Drink, Man, Woman is a gorgeous movie. That whole opening sequence with, like, food being prepared. It made um, me so hungry. <laughs> I know. The gag of, like, having your daughter work at Wendy's <laughs> while, you, while you are a top chef. I was like, this shit slaps. <laughs> I love Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. It is so good and so wonderful. Um, but getting out of the... Uh, father knows best trilogy which you know is this big huge turning point he's successful in taiwan but also being successful abroad um starts getting him a little notices <laughs> from other gals on on the block uh in 1995 uh columbia tristar is like hey gal we're trying to put together a little something called sense and sensibility uh, which we've talked about in our emma thompson episode Lindsay doran and uh emma thompson are writing the screenplay and they basically are really trying hard to find someone to make Sense and Sensibility. And they basically see um, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and the Wedding Banquet on the award circuit. And they are like, oh shit, what about Ang Lee? And, and Ang, meanwhile, still speaks very broken English. Um, even the movies he's talked about, you know, th- those first three movies... Um, for like a lot of the New York shooting and and that cultural stuff, he had he worked a lot with the people around him to make sure that was correct and looked right, and he utilized the the crew that he had assembled to make sure that all of his cultural blind spots were being covered. He said that he had not read Sense and Sensibility when they um, <laughs> you know approached him. He had read a little bit of Pride and Prejudice, but he, and I'm not fucking joking, he said, quote, I thought those books were for girls. Uh, canceled. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sorry, Aang. So now Episode's over. Episode's over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he decides to take it on. And in the same way, though, he works with Emma Thompson and the, to to really fill in the holes of, he, he never fucking bring to the UK um, and makes this fucking movie that Again, surprise, surprise, gets nominated for seven Academy Awards. It's gorgeous. It's hilarious. Emma Thompson wins the Oscar for Adapt Screenplay. When we talked about this in the Emma Thompson episode, we we didn't talk about the Ang Lee of it all. And what's mm. interesting is bringing somebody who does who lacks that sort of into... And I think what he does sort of in the film world is he, he kind of makes the... Even though they're using a lot of the same people, a lot of the same costume designers and everything, he makes the anti-Merchant and Ivory um, Jane Austen adaptation. Yeah, mm-hmm. Merchant and Ivory, known for making like Room of the View and and uh, many many other movies, talented, incredibly talented. But a lot of their films are considered a little stuffy and a little. And what's great about Sense and Sensibility is it sort of removes that pretense. It makes it very accessible to an modern audience in a way that perhaps those other movies feel a little more dull and i think that's a really brilliant thing and also we were talking about this before but uh ang lee is also very blunt and not Mm -hmm. not someone to like mince his words he would tell them 
you know, uh, how he wanted scenes done. You know, one of the, you know, the, one of the most brilliant scenes in the movie at the end is um, Hugh Grant telling Emma Thompson he's in love with her, and Emma Thompson was like, "Well, okay, I'm gonna play it like the, I'm gonna cry the whole time." And Ang Lee didn't wasn't like, "Don't do that," but he was like, "Okay, then my one challenge to you is don't look at the camera, don't look." <laughs> and and it's great. it's great it's a wonder it's a beautiful instinct and it, it totally works for everything that's happening in the movie but you know he was not used to actors telling him how they were going to perform things he was not used to actors suggesting things he was also not used to what he called you know theatrical acting for film right, right and so he really wanted to tamp that down so i think it's really fascinating manish before uh we started you actually brought up something he said to emma thompson and could you please Tell us all what he said to our dear Miss Thompson. Yeah, I think um, she said, I believe it's in the commentary or some retrospective of the movie. She said that, you know, Ang Lee's really, you know, a really great director to work with. But he once told her that she needs to stop looking so old <laughs> in some of her scenes. I can just picture him saying that to her. And just, yeah, I mean, because um, Sunset's Ability is one of my favorite movies of all time, like definitely top 10. Um and the angle of it all is a lot of the reason why, because um, like like you were saying, Gavin, it's very much not the typical British period, you know, production. And I think it's having to do with Ang Lee's. I mean, the old comment is a joke, and that's, I think it's really funny. But it's this whole thing of like he just is able to, you know, he's able to find the like comedy of it and able to find the like human part of it. And he's, I think it's like a really stripped down for, for you know, for all of its elaborate costumes, um, and set design. And, um, he also like takes a lot of, um, he does a lot of footage outdoors too. And you have these like kind of wide vistas. I think Sense Sensibility is one of those movies where I'm like every decision that people made from when they first developed the project to the end of it, like, is the perfect decision. Like, I think mm. it's such a it's such a great movie. It holds up extremely well, like, 25 years later. I really got into what you're talking about, the framing, consciously. That I was conscious about myself being a Chinese filmmaker. I use negative space and framing how the picture reflect the inner uh, pictures of, of actors without saying it was starting from actually ironically uh, a sense sensibility, which I was the first time I wasn't directing a Chinese film. And it's the first time I deal with the movie purely those oratory skills. It's a verbal culture. I did that because I was so scared of the actors. I want to stay away from them. <laughs> Lindsay and Emma knew that they had found their right choice when in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, the older sister says to the younger sister, what do you know of my heart? Which is a line that is in A Sense and Sensibility. And they yeah. were like, oh, fuck. Like, it's, <laughs> these movies cannot be more different, but like the soul of it is very similar. This movie comes out in 1995, um, gets a bunch of nominations. Um, meanwhile, his dad is still like, when are you going to retire and become a teacher? What's the, fuck, <laughs> what's, what's the deal? Um, and he's like, a little fun, dad. Uh, in 1997, um, The Ice Storm comes out. Um, it's a drama set in the 1970s. Um, it's, you know, people like it. <laughs> I knew, I knew, <laughs> I knew you were not gonna, I, I think The Ice Storm is 
a masterpiece. I'm just going to yeah, say. I mean, it's up there for me. I think it's like one of, yeah, I think one of the best movies of, of its kind, you know, and of its era. Of the boring kind? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh you cad. Uh, <laughs> I am a cad and a cow. And all I will say, all I will say is the amount of movies I had to watch with Tobey Maguire. Tobey Maguire, no, you can, he, he can keep it. I will say that I, I just really enjoy The Ice Storm. It's a, it's a film about family. I think it captures that sort of um, moment in the 70s where people were trying to sort of explore. They were sort of breaking out of the nuclear thing of the of the 50s and 60s. And, it, you know, it has that reflection of, of the loving period of the 60s, but it's much more materialistic now. And it's, uh, I love Joan Allen's performance and Kevin Klein's oh, performance and yeah. Sigourney Weaver. Like, uh, like the adult stuff is really what does it for me. And then Christina Ricci, who's just never, and once she turned 20, just has never gotten her due. Uh, but really fantastic and i get i get it louis it is it is white people problems for the most part can i tell you kevin klein's speech to toby mcguire about masturbation has scarred me since i was a child (laughs) because i remember watching that movie on hbo as a kid and being like oh no i don't think ang lee is unaware that this is a white people problem movie i mean i think like a lot of filmmakers who are not white who take on movies like this there's always a level of awareness of that and I think he's contrasting, like, sort of the like this, like, r- silly, repressed community where they think they're so liberal, but they're actually, like, very conservative and very uh, repressed and, like, quiet and, and like, so um, uh, insular and navel-gazy. And he wanted to contrast that with, like, you know, the sort of, like, the purity of nature that is around them and, the like, the ice storm itself, which is this, like, huge, you know, like... Called this huge like natural thing that is shaking up all their lives. The ice and, storm is an extra character. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, I really, I, I really am like, I do like this movie a lot. And um, I think what I love about it is just like the the mirror imagery in this movie yeah. and the echoes like between the characters. And he also said that this movie was a. A, like a contrast to sense sensibility, you know, because that movie is like in this very repressed society, but like these people are able to like live and love and, and be and find ways to find freedom. And then in the seventies, this like everyone wants to be like swinging and sexy and stuff, but they like cannot do it. So I like the ice storm. I understand it's a white people problem movie, <laughs> but I think it's, I think uh, if you want to consider that to be like a sub genre, I think it's one of the best ones. And shout out to gorgeous sound design. <laughs> And I think yeah. you tweeted oh something God, about the ice. it. Yeah. yeah, the ice sound design is, I mean, like, oh, man, the, like, the way, like, the icicles, like, shake and stuff, it's just incredible. Yeah. Shout out to um, Allison Jenny, who I really enjoyed this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> and no one else. The way and that no she, one else. The way that she catches <laughs> the keys when Joan Allen, like, angrily yeah. throws them at her. I I actually went back and rewatched. I was like, I need yeah. to see that again. I need a, I need an yeah. instant replay. Al- Allison Jenny's like... I'm ready to fuck. Are you guys? Yes. <laughs> On the self-abuse front, and this is important. Uh, I don't think it's advisable to do it in the shower. It wastes water and electricity, and because we all expect you to be doing it there in any case. And, uh, not on uh, under the linen. Well, uh, anyway, if you're worried about anything at all, just feel free to ask, and uh, we'll look it up. Dad, you know I'm 16. Huh. All the more reason to be having this little heart-to-heart. Angley fully is like, 
he is the entire tasting the rainbow of movie making. Like we are in 1999 and he's already made, you know, two very wildly different period pieces. One in the seventies, one in like fucking ancient British times or whatever the fuck. And, and also making these like really cultural thing. And we're going to, as we go forward, we're going to see, you know, he's making blockbusters. He's making a Wuja film. It's, he is all over the map. And what he said is he's, like you had mentioned, Manish, he's just like a curious little filmmaker. He says, I don't have a genre. I don't, he's like, what is auteur? He's like, I just want to keep pushing myself and live a life of learning, a life of uh, film school. And we're going to see it come up even more and more, especially now. He wants to push the filmmaking and the, the even though he says he's not a technician, technical filmmaker, like he is finding new technical ways to make movies. Yeah. So he makes this Western, Ride with the Devil, which as I, I was reading up on it and, every, and I, now all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, yeah, Ride with the Devil so underrated. People really didn't give it a chance. And I'm like, girl, where? This movie is 10,000 years long. Yeah. And I kept reading how he's like, I'm, I just love being an outsider. I love, you know, making movies about the losers. And he like mentions this movie and I'm like, yeah, it, it was the fucking South. You're like, like what they the are the actual losers. Yeah, correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. I was like, I don't know if I need to feel any like, oh, sympathy for the South. Yeah. And, like it, the slave owners. Oh, I also think the unfortunate thing is, is he cast the entirety of every CW actor from the time period. Yes. And so I think the acting is wildly inconsistent. The big culmination scene between Toby Maguire and Jonathan Reese Myers. Right. I I don't know what the energy of that scene is supposed to be. Jonathan Reese Myers is at at 29 and Toby yeah. Maguire <laughs> he's playing a vampire. Yeah. He's playing a vampire. And Toby Maguire <laughs> is asleep. I don't know. Like yeah. he's delivering yeah. every line like this. And I'm just like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, I texted you. I was like, when did we decide to accept Tobey Maguire into our lives? <laughs> and how come he was in every movie from 1999 to 2005? And so anyway, stay tuned like, for our Tobey Maguire mixed reviews. <laughs> I can't wait to hear that. Bring those two outside. I want to show them something. We'll see to them once we've had our vittles. Why, you little Dutch son of a bitch. You do what I tell you or I'll kill you. And when you figure to do this mean thing to me, Mackison, is this very moment convenient for you? It is for me. And what's wild is because once you get to Brookback Mountain, I was like, thank God Jake Gyllenhaal came around because we can just move Toby Maguire into like the <laughs> dustbin, never have to hear from him again because we have a Jake Gyllenhaal that says the same thing, but better. None of us have talked about the jewel in the room, which is the fact that this is, <sighs> you know, the first jewel starring role of jewel. Yeah. And uh, Ang Lee told her to her face that he cast her because her teeth are fucked up. Um, I guess her barbecue was canceled because yeah. her grill is fucked. And fucked. <laughs> but that's yeah. a gag. And and again, this being like you have the mouth of a fucking Civil War woman. <laughs> Perfect caster. Yeah, exactly. I just that's. I mean, I think that goes back to you know saying that like Ang Lee is sometimes very blunt. You know, in the mm-hmm. in the sort of Emma Thompson way. Uh, that yeah. that she mentioned. Getting into the millennium, Ang Lee, I, you, know, you know, had been saying since like 1991, talking about, um, quote, the thing I'd most like to make is a classical King Dynasty style martial arts film. I already have my eye on a novel I'd really like to base it on. Guess what, baby? Here comes 2000 
a crouching tiger hidden dragon and it is the la la re experience okay like <laughs> it, we talk about this in our michelle yo episode um but he, um, ang just basically kind of gathers the four corners of china and Taiwanese talent from actors, singers, uh, you know, uh, choreographers, and just makes the full uh, uh, movie of his dreams. Um, he introduces Wuja uh, filmmaking essentially to the Western world. Um, people are gooped. We had not seen this style of like the fighting and stuff. I mean, um, I don't know if I need to like tell you guys what Crouching Tiger and Dragon is. It's basically this girl. She has a sword, and then Michelle Yeoh wants to get that sword back. <laughs> and there's a lot of fighting. That, that is and the, there's a lot of fighting in between. The simplest explanation. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you want to hear uh, more about, like, we covered a lot of ground on it in the Michelle Yeoh episode. I will say, I think it's one of his most beautiful films. It's absolutely up there for me. And he says that it was like his midlife crisis movie. You know, I could he, see that. Like, needed to do this like big gorgeous thing and it, it yeah it's stunning uh, it, it, he exhausted himself making this movie you know it was it was a lot of work i think it's just a, a gorgeous movie i do want to say you know because we talked about wuxia it's the the sort of chinese swords high wire martial arts um but the funny thing is uh i, I do think people sort of had a like a small context for wuxia in america but people didn't see them as these gorgeous, lavish, big budget, you know, they saw them as these like 70s, you know, like not, right, you know, right. not great. Very B-list. Yeah, exactly. Bad dubbing, which is something we do here in America. And, and but it's even like his his fight choreographer was like pushing back against that style and was yeah. like, no, like we, if we do, it's going to be too much. Like the West will not accept this type of movie. Right. Well, cause fight choreographer is the same choreographer that worked on the matrix, which is like fast mm-hmm. and you know, that sort of, and, and so, yeah, so I agree. It, it It's something that you would think maybe wouldn't work uh, in America. And it, it's plays gangbusters, you know, it gets nominated. Yeah. It wins best foreign language film. I don't think it's given enough credit for sort of globalizing that style and you know in mm-hmm. this in the i would say in the same way that sense and sensibility really modernizes the sort of edwardian victorian era adaptations this sort of brings this wuxia style into the american conscious and changes the way action films are made for at least a decade in our industry hong kong taiwan and in china as well i think People like me will never make martial art films. Mm. No, it's the choreographers. They get the chance to direct those movies. If you want to, you leave those sections to them. But I thought in order to do something that's close to my dreams, mm-hmm. uh, I need to accumulate my clouds, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I figured after Sense Sensibility, I started to think maybe one more Western movie, I go back huh. and fulfill the dreams. And it made a bunch of fucking money there was definitely controversy when it lost um best picture i think he was kind of upset that he did when it won best foreign film he was like fuck like this was a movie that like everyone was talking about um it lost to gladiator which you know is a movie that people like after crouching tiger hidden dragon he goes on to make hulk which like manish i remember seeing this in the theater and being very charmed by like the comic bookiness of it all uh, I remember, like, during the time, all the press was about, like, oh, we filmed it in a, such a different style and way. 
Like the movie literally has like close ups and like these detailed things and like it's moving like comic book panels. Yeah, and it's stuff. After Effects the movie. Very that. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not saying whole... that I like it, so I'm not. I I don't want that to sound like a knock. I personally love After Effects. <laughs> um, but yeah, Hulk turns out to be the hugest like critical and commercial disaster of his career. Um, uh, not commercial, critical. Not yeah, commercial. I feel like Hulk made money. It right? made a ton of money. Yeah, and like that's yeah. the thing that I think people forget. It grossed two hundred and forty-five million dollars at the box office, but critical memory always supersedes financial memory i find so if your movie is considered critically good and also makes money people are like yeah it was a success but if your movie is trash but then makes money people are like yeah total disaster and so i i think it's a really interesting thing that like you know he did try and make something different out of it he really wanted to capture that comic book style um sometimes really bonkers post-production but uh, you know interesting i don't think it's ever visually not interesting I feel like you got to appreciate that it's, like, different, and it's, like, trying to be this, like, psychodrama and, like, very, like, father-son, you know, right. like, like, thematics, because, like, I don't know, I just feel like when I, like, when I was watching it again, I'm like, wow, like, Marvel, like Marvel movies, DC movies now, like, they just don't take those kind of no. risks, and they are trying to be so much, like, everything to everyone, and, like, I love the MCU, don't get me wrong. At the same time, I'm like, you know, this is, like, I mean, this is really an angly movie that is, like, transplanted into a superhero movie, and I think, like, we don't get that with um, modern superhero movies. Like, there's always that, like veneer of disney or warner brothers or whoever on on the reverse side of that i think he's directly responsible for why we get so many like pathos heavy adaptations of, yeah. of superheroes <laughs> for the next 10 years before marvel yeah. starts to come in and make them more jokey a little bit so that i think like without ang lee's hulk even though once again critical disaster i don't think you get nolan's batman trilogy or anything no, like that because no. you know it's all it's these sort of auteurs that are like i really want to take this very seriously i think the other hand i'm a big comic book fan so i think the other hand you also have to think about is hulk's not a superhero i mean he's a monster and and i think angley was much more interested in the frankenstein you know like monster is a monster created or is a monster born you know that thematic thing which you were talking about with the father and obviously fathers are a huge deal to him both in his life yeah. the father knows best trilogy and i think it's psychologically it it like really seeped into this movie and maybe that maybe it just wasn't the place for it maybe and that's you know why people didn't react to it on the same level and it is occasionally weighed down by its own seriousness um sure the, i think culturally the biggest impact it really ends up having is nick nolte gets arrested during the filmmaking and his <laughs> hair is wild and crazy Crazy, and you get that very famous Nick Nolte mugshot, and that, so that was during this filming. Yes, that's why he looks like that in the mugshot. Stop! Stop! What? Stop! What? Think about all those men out there in their uniforms, barking and swallowing orders, inflicting their petty rule over the entire globe. And know this, that we can make them and the flags and their anthems and the governments disappear in a flash. You, he and me, are die. Also, should mention, he talks a lot about, he was the Hulk. Like, he had to, like, make, in making the actual, like... Yeah, he did the mocap. CGI. Yeah, he, exactly. And, like, 
I don't think there are a lot of directors that would fucking do that. <laughs> he was like, uh, I need to, and this kind of gets to like the technical aspect of it. He was like, I need it to look a certain way when he's moving around. And I will say, it doesn't look bad. It looks very different to what obviously Hulk looks now. Yeah. After the Hulk, though, he was kind of devastated. He was kind of, you know, uh, really beat up by um, for it. And, you know, the, I don't know, Hulk dogs that people like to shit on. <laughs> that is um, son designed, nonetheless. So, like, I don't know. That's just charming. His son. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he considers retiring, though. He he says, I failed once. I don't think so. I'm out of here. He goes home and he tells his father that he's fu- going to consider retiring. And, you know, maybe it is time for him to finally be a professor or whatever. And surprisingly, his dad's like, I think you're just going to be even more depressed if you retire. You should just make another movie. And Aang was like, excuse me? For the first time, his father was supporting him and told him, you just need to get back to it. Unfortunately, his dad died two weeks later, just in his sleep. Um, and instead of grieving, um, Aang decides to make Brokeback Mountain, which was a story that he had read uh, years before even starting on Hulk. And and says, you know, I let's just do this instead. And he he dives right into Brokeback Mountain. Um, which, you know, he wants to, the complete opposite of the Hulk. He says, low budget, uh, indie art house movie. Um, it takes a lot of work to get all the pieces together. Um, but boy, do they come together. So Brookmark Mountain comes out in 2005 and it's a critical and commercial success. It's, you know, uh, there's a lot of young A-list actors who we see now, like at the beginning of their career. I mean, I read about how Anne Hathaway audition for this while she was filming princess diaries 2 yeah i think we actually talked about that in the Anne hathaway episode but back in our back in our Anne hathaway episode yes love that energy the wig parade she's in in this movie <laughs> excellent and um, she's such a she's such a queer ally just from the beginning of her career yeah um also i think we don't talk enough about michelle williams in this yeah. goddamn movie because she is so so good when she's holding Alma Jr. Love that they named their daughter the same as the mom. And she's just like crying because she's seeing her husband go do gay things. Uh, it's so, so good. Um, yeah, I, I first watched this movie in high school and did not give a fuck about it. I was too busy pretending to not be gay. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I get that. But watching it now, it's just like, holy shit. It's so devastating. I will say yeah. before we uh, started this episode, Manish, you sent us uh, a bunch of pieces that you had written uh, about the works of Ang Lee. And I really connected to uh, some of the things you were saying about how you remember Brokeback Mountain being received as a teen. I'm slightly older than you. So I, <laughs> I would have been in college at the time. But I, I agree. I feel like the, you know you wrote about how this was considered a, like an open joke. Like it was like, oh, the gay yeah. cowboy movie. Like, oh, yeah. like, and and you wrote a really deep thing about masculinity and how like the idea of submitting to another man is really challenging for a lot of people. And this movie really plays with that and angley has said many times like angley's done the stupid like oh it's not even that they're gay like it's you know it's a love story it's universal whatever babe but uh, i think that's very true is i think that movie this movie challenges a lot of those preconceived notions of a mainstream audience going in and being like oh you know it's it's this one thing or it's this other thing when really it just turns out to be a story about 
two men who happen to fall in love with each other. And yeah, their relationship is very physical at first and doesn't really have a ton to do with emotions because Heath Ledger's Ennis character is so repressed and so into his own, um, you know, societal's masculinity that's been pushed on him. I don't know. I I love this movie. It's tough. It's tough to talk about. It's so it's so layered and so deep. Well, thank you so much for um, for those kind words. Um, because uh, almost contrary to what you were saying, Louis Brokeback Mountain was like huge for me. Um, uh, in, similarly, I was you know I was closeted. I was in Catholic school, so oh, um, not so only sorry. were there a lot of jokes, <laughs> we weren't really allowed to talk about it except to be like, oh, that movie, you know. So. There was just a lot of that, and like, um, in in some ways, it like pushed me out of the closet and back into it. You know, like it was, it was this like weird thing. And I remember seeing it. Um, I stuck out with uh, my friend Brittany, my other friend Melissa. We told my parents we we're seeing some kids' movie that was coming out. I don't remember what it was. I couldn't even comprehend like what I was seeing. Right. One of the things that really struck me is how the beginning of this movie is so beautiful and so lovely yeah. and as it as it goes on it gets tougher and harder and harsher and it's like the reality the farther you get away from brokeback mountain itself like the physical place yeah and i think jack uh the um jake gyllenhaal character he like recognizes it's like you know brokeback mountain is wonderful and they love going up there and having their time but it's just not real it's right. not like yeah. sustained and it's not enough for him and so uh, we were talking last night about uh you know God, I love that first half of the movie, and it's like, well, because that's like the romance, that's the yeah, that's the paradise. Um, but you know, as time marches on, these guys grow up and get older, and their life can't just be being on Brokeback Mountain, you know. Right. And this has to work. And I'll say it just once. Go ahead. Tell you what, we could have had a good life together, fucking real good life, had us a place of our own. But you didn't want it, Ennis. So what we got now is Brokeback Mountain! Everything's built on that! That's all we got, boy! Fucking all! So I hope you know that if you don't ever know the rest. You count the damn few times that we have been together in nearly 20 years, and you measure the short fucking leash you keep me on, and then you ask me about Mexico, and you tell me you kill me for needing something I don't hardly never get. Shout out just in terms of filmmaking, production design, beautiful, and I think this goes back to exactly what you're saying, Louis, is that Brokeback is presented sort of as this fantasy land, this beautiful vistas, this colors and everything. So the fact is, when you get to the end of the movie, and you get, uh, you know, Ennis visiting Jack Twist's childhood home, and... Uh, after he's called Anne Hathaway and she says the thing about fantasy land and whatnot and mm-hmm. he gets his child at home and it's stark white and it's sparse and there's yeah. nothing in it and you see the reality that Jack Twist came from and the character that he created for himself all that said without words and it's be- yeah. it's beautiful I just want to make a connection to Crash and Tiger Hidden Dragon uh, because uh, we didn't mention the the romance part of Crash and Hagrid and Dragon, oh. which has two beautiful love stories. Yeah. Um, For the price and of one. I, I really connected Brokeback Mountain with Michelle Yeoh's uh, love story with Chow Yun Fat yeah. because it's this idea of like, it could, if you could just get over this gulf of pride or what society's expectations are or whatever is this like ex- external factor that is keeping these two people apart, you could just get over that then you could have this like beautiful like love together. And I think in both movies, it just shows that like you just can't 
it's hard to do that. I mean, it's so much harder to do that. I mean, it would be so easy for Jack and Ennis to run off to Brokeback Mountain or wherever, but they just, they can't. So, needless to say, Brokeback Mountain wins a billion awards, including <laughs> um, a Best Director um, award for him. And it loses, however, Best Picture to Crash. But I, I do, um, which is devastating. Like, and this mm-hmm. is not Cronenberg's Crash, folks. This is the bad Crash. <laughs> um, but uh, I... I will say, once again, crazy. We are going into the 93rd year of the Academy Awards. Ang Lee, in 2005, 2006, whatever, it was the first non-white person to win Best Director. What is wrong with us? And I've said it before on the show, the Academy Awards don't really matter until they do. That That's when it fucking matters, guys. And, and why it matters is because... At 9 a.m. in Taiwan, millions of people sat around watching their TVs and fucking lost their shit when their native son, Ang Lee Wan. And, you know, there had been uh, essays and headlines and like that was the talk of the town for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you know what? He fucking did it. And um, it was for a gay cowboy movie that everyone loved. So yeah, it does matter. Like it doesn't yeah. until it does, and this is a moment it totally matters. And it's fucking crazy that it took that long for um, someone who is not white to win that. Um, in two thousand seven, we get Lust Caution, which is erotic. <laughs> uh, NC seventeen, honey. I was like not expecting to see as much puss as I did, but <laughs> here we are. Um, what's the name of the guy who's the lead? Tommy Wong, I no. think is his name. Uh- Tony Leung, he's one of the most beautiful people ever created on this planet. That was the point I was going to make. Yes, so hot. <laughs> yeah, so, I was like, you need I was to like, see me, Daddy. Uh, baby, you need to see more films that he's in because let me tell you, he only in gets in the mood for love. Oh, in the mood for love, happy together. Though happy together will leave you a mess. I'm sorry, but uh, uh, okay. Chunking okay. Express. Chunking Express. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's so funny in Chunking Express and also very so hot. Good. Yeah, he is he is genuinely like if you need proof that there is intelligent design in this universe, somebody created that <laughs> and it is uh-huh. it's very uh-huh. good. Lust Caution was uh, adapted from the short novel by Chinese author Eileen Chang. People accepted as it was based on an actual uh spy um yeah. in Shanghai. Basically, a little Wamana spy wants to get into the pants of a you know top agent for this puppet government so they could fuck him up and unfortunately it gets really fucking too much lust not enough caution uh (laughs) which is the pandemic mood everyone (laughs) yeah yeah when you want to talk about erotic thriller here she is folks yeah Um, and and i was gonna say that it's it's um gratuitous and i don't mean gratuitous in a bad way but it's gratuitous in in the two in the two big ways that you can because also there's violence in this movie and it is treated like violence like it is not treated there's no kid gloves it's not like oh hey you know you stab somebody and they die like there is a there is a death in this film that is brutal to watch and oh yeah yeah it it got a lot of like blowback because it's so gratuitous in the sex like you you see a lot of sex and um i've read that it took a hundred hours to film those sex scenes to me though it doesn't feel unnecessary it feels like you he wants you to know like how dangerous and how much she's giving up of herself for this to be a spy and and how she is being infected by this man who is not only taking over her body but her heart and her mind is it is a a, not a game (laughs) she ain't joking um and yeah it's i think the star of the movie um she like 
was excommunicated for a while. Yeah, she um, she found it very hard to work afterwards for at least a, a three-year period of time. Yeah, Tang Wei is her name. Yeah. And it's funny because this is the movie that he makes after Rook Mountain, which had already had a bunch of controversy, um, censored, people didn't want to see it. Less caution, I think they had to like edit out a bunch of uh, parts of it for it to be yeah, shown in he China. Yeah, w- he was heartbroken that he had to remove at nine minutes, which like it may not seem like a lot, but you, you have a very limited span when it comes to a movie. And admittedly, this movie is two and a half hours long, but it's, uh, I mean, taking out nine minutes is... That's a big feat. And so he was a little heartbroken that it wasn't going to play China. And he didn't have high expectations for the American audience because he felt it was too much of a Chinese film. Uh, And I think, unfortunately, he was right for most part of the American audience. I feel like most people don't talk about Les Caution when they talk about the Ang Lee canon. But it was huge in Taiwan. Yeah. And he won um, the Golden Lion um, at Venice. You know, so it was a critical... Um, you know, hit. Um, you, what you need to know is that Ang Lee has won every award twice. Is all <laughs> I'm saying. You know, he won the Golden Lion twice. He wins Best Director twice. Um, which just gets us to, um, oh, well, I guess he makes uh, Taking Woodstock, which is kind of like a minor entry. I, would I lo- say I, that is the... exactly how one should talk about the making of. And then he makes Taking Woodstock, anyways. <laughs> I wasn't mad at it, but like also meh. Yeah. No, yeah. it's it's so bad. I'm sorry. Like, it's just so like I I really cannot imagine going from something as like elegant and raw and powerful as Lust Caution and to Taking Woodstock, which is like. They don't even go to Woodstock. Like the main character doesn't even make it there. I'm like, and it's so just surface. Yeah, I yeah. I'm with you. I yeah, it, it's so funny to to like revisit. You know, it, it, he's revisiting queer themes like broke back in the wedding banquet, and he's revisiting familial themes. And I just I that script. I mean, it's it's. I don't want to say it's offensive though. I do think the Emilda Staunton character. Like oh, co- yeah. constantly being like I'm Jewish, and then then like hiding money. <laughs> I was like Jesus yeah. Christ. I do think that this is my personal theory. I don't have any basis on this. Maybe you guys have other information, but I think this is more of a James Seamus yeah. passion project you that Amy took on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and I think because this is the last movie that they do together. I think, and um, I think that there's just such a. Um, I think Ang Lee is just so bored with it but you know <laughs> yeah after that we get life of pi which is one of the bangers like uh yeah. manish i one of the the links that you sent about your writing that i really was super into was you kind of like packaged together life of pi billy lynn and gemini My, gemini man about this kind of like the search you know like the searching man wandering man looking yeah. for something and um god rewatching life of pi is just a very specific treat like god like do yourself a favor like looking for something like fun and like just kind of like awe-inspiring god like i remember when i watched this in the theater like if there ever was an argument for fucking yeah. keeping the theaters open bitch like here she is yeah that whale yeah. scene <laughs> that kills me yeah i think there there are a handful of movies that i think really justify 3d life of pi gravity hugo avatar like but because there's just such a like there's such beauty in it, not just like spectacle beauty, but just like so much care. And um, I love Life of Pi. You know, my Twitter name right now is named after the movie. And it's like, 
And I, every every year I go through a life of high phase where I watch it like three times. Uh, I've seen it so many <laughs> times, and it's so devastating. And it's like it's I love the I love how episodic it is. You know, it goes through these like different little like events that happen. You know, the Meerkat Island part is my favorite part of the film, and I think it's his last last great great movie. And uh, I'm really in like. I'm excited right. for him to go back to the like the juice he had with Life of Pi. Right. I mean, this is like, you know, talking about technical, people were saying like, I mean, the, the book was like a monstrous success. Everyone wanted to make this movie, but like people thought it was unfilmable. Like there was no way that yeah. they could do this movie about like, you know, a little brown kid at sea with a fucking tiger and like, you know, the, just like all this crazy fucking shit. And he said... Try me, bitch. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> he built this entire huge like water tank in Taiwan. Um, I will say, I don't know if you guys read the article a couple years ago that the um, like animal people of America or yeah. whatever. I wrote like that literally like there were emails found where it said the tiger almost fucking drowned and like really led to changes about um filmmaking and animals i will i will say on the other end of that like there's definitely some negative controversy that occurs with this film too because the other end of that too is that rhythm and hughes who does all the impressive special effects the the tiger the you know the things that we're talking about that really make you know that animate out the tank and uh they go bankrupt and ang lee doesn't thank them when he <laughs> wins the Academy Award and when when they win for special effects, as soon as the recipient mentions their name, he gets played off the stage and they have to protest outside the Oscars. And so it's unfortunate because I, I mean, post is very close to my heart because it's my profession. But mm-hmm. like, that, you know, you, you got to. You got to pay the people that do the work. You just, you have to. And I know that's not yeah. Ang Lee's, but like Ang Lee is not the one going in and signing the checks. But, you know. No, I think he was like, don't pay these people. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, specifically <laughs> Actually, them? No. no. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah. They, uh, so, yeah, I, I have some problems on the back end of that movie, but that have very yeah, little yeah. to do with the art itself. So. Irfan Khan, who's in this movie, like. Yeah, the beginning and the end, and he is just so so good. And the yeah. like the movie rides and dies, even with all the like the spectacle, with just him at the end saying like, "Well, what do you believe? Yeah. Would you rather believe yeah. like that I was on this raft with animals, or would you rather believe that I was on with people?" And it's like the humanity of the story. It's because it's so easy to get lost in like the wonder and to lose that like this was a really awful, traumatic, horrible fucking thing to happen to a person. Um, and uh, it's just really emotional. Um, he wins, again, a boatload of awards. He wins uh, Best Director. Thank you, movie god. <laughs> I, I really need to share this with all 3,000. Everybody work with me in Life of Pi. I want to thank you for... I really want to thank you for believing this story and share this incredible journey with me. We're getting basically into the now. He makes Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which is also a very famous novel. Um, it, that was in November of 2016. It was mostly known because he filmed it an extra high frame rate of 120 frames per second, um, further complicated by the 3D format at the 4K HD resolution. Yeah. Basically, it looks like a daytime soap opera. I, I think uh, it's really funny that he looked at the Hobbit and was like, oh, people hated this. We shouldn't do that. And then was like, <laughs> let's triple it. Let's yeah. triple it. <laughs> um, 
I think this kind of gets into like his whole gagarini of wanting to like push the envelope. He's said many, many times that the future of cinema is filmmakers have to push the medium itself. Um, that if we want to make theater and film going special, it has to look different than yeah. TV yeah. because TV's come such a long way. Um, and people's, uh, uh, attention spans are so shortened. Um, so like he and he doubles down and makes Gemini Man in 2017, <laughs> and um, both movies are flop Tinas. Uh, Gemini Man is like kind of an old school. It's a 90s um, script, and and very much like the same thing that just happened with that HBO movie with Denzel Washington that I can't think of the name of because I banished it from my brain. It feels 90s. It it's like yeah. nobody went through and was like, well, let's the audiences might be a little more sophisticated now. Now, um. And and I think, and you guys, please chime in with your mixed reviews. I think both movies are pretty inoffensive. Billy's Long's Halftime Walk is maybe probably more. But like, Gemini Man, I was like, well, that was a movie. And it was Will Smith <laughs> doing action things and whatever. At the very least, thank God they didn't make him like make out with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Like, at least they didn't try to make them a, a yeah, thing. Yeah, their chemistry is, I mean, first of all, she's also like 30 years younger than him. Even though at the end, it's kind of like... And now we're the mom and yeah, dad. Yeah, we're mommy and daddy <laughs> of our clone baby. Um, I will say for Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, I think we should talk about it because as I was watching it, I'd never seen it before. Did not know what, but I kind of knew what it was about. Um, I think I was like, "Who's this movie for?" Who, like, because clearly it's like shitting on patriotism and conservatism and like war in general. So it's not made for Republicans or conservative right. people, but like it's not I can't imagine any like liberal person being like, yes, this is the movie I want to see. It's not like I I, I don't know. I also found it a weird change. Uh, and once again, Ang Lee, basically Ang Lee hasn't written a movie since he, he did one movie that he didn't direct called Sal Yu um, in 95. That, that was the last thing he's written. So I don't I don't want to take any of these scripts out on him. But I do think sometimes he like gets in his head over the technical and forgets about the, the you know the the way that these scripts play out, and he's really focused on the emotions, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because I do think there's occasionally some really interesting emotional stuff in Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Here's the reason why I think it's hard, and I don't know anyone who would want like this movie is just because while they're shitting on the war, and at the same time. The movie is making the case that, like, no one understands us except for us. If you are not in the military, you don't get it, and we don't want to hear it. Like, only we, like, we are our own family, and and anyone outside of it cannot even... There's no one in the movie that's like, hey, gal, are you okay? I think um, I think I like this movie a little bit more uh, than, you, than both of you do. Not that I'm, like, a huge champion for it. Uh, it's kind of in that, like... Look, the, look at that poster behind you. We see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, I I find the the war satire part of it really really interesting actually because I mean I guess I see what you're saying in that like it is very much like no one understands the military except people in the military but I guess I felt that it was also like everyone in Billy Lynn's life is putting so much like pressure on him even his own sister is like projecting her own things onto him and the movie producer the football studio stadium owner the you know, the girlfriend even, like, everyone is putting so much just, like, in external pressure on um, Billy Lynn. And 
it's also just about like no one's actually like I think the part of the point of the movie is no one is saying how are you everyone's saying like this is what you should do this is what you have to do no one's actually listening right. to these veterans and um, or even like thinking of them as human beings they're just these like props and um, they're veterans I who think, are like children also yeah exactly like these are like um, like one thing that I find really interesting about Ang Lee and something that I didn't really notice until this past month is like how much his movies are about, like, youth, like, young people in the face of, like, these, like, large things that they don't understand and that don't understand them. Like, even going back to, um, you know, The Wedding Banquet, Ice Storm, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, uh, even, um, you know, Lost Caution, like, Sun Sensibility. Like, there's just so much of these things that are bigger than these young people and it's, like, all this, like, pressure. And I think it continues through Gemini Man. Like, I don't know. There's such a narrative around these two movies that is like, oh, Ang Lee just cares about the technology. He doesn't really care about the story. He's like lost it. But I'm like, I think these like, I think the connections are there and I think they're successful to a varying degree. I mean, I think I'm probably one of the few people who will defend Billy Lynn like this. (laughs) Beyond like the technical of it all, it's just a really hard movie. It's not a nice, good movie, you know. Like, you know. and when I say good, like, it doesn't make me feel anything. Yeah, it's like, not nice. And and Vin Diesel is truly the only, like the saving grace of it all is Vin Diesel, this character who dies at the beginning of this movie. Like, he goes out of his way to say "I love you" before they fucking yeah. are about to go into fucking battle. And it's like, God, if just more people in the world would tell these guys that they actually love them and not use them as like props like you said Manish. yeah um so it's it's such tough uh it's a tough thing to take in i'm gonna change overall, my letterbox rating i think <laughs> i go. think you five guys stars. have convinced me <laughs> five stars i'm not a hero cat i'm a soldier that's what shroom taught me that's where i belong i'm not saying it's right but it's not wrong either it just is I just wish there was some goddamn way I could make you proud of me. We have Gemini Man that comes and goes, um, and he's got a couple things cooking that we'll talk about later. Um, I think I touched on his personal life. You know, he's married to Jane, who's a microbiologist. They've been married for since 1983. They have two sons. Um, the older one, Han, was in Billy Lynn's long halftime walk as one of the um, young veterans. Um Lee is described as a naturalized U.S. citizen. I've heard him talk a lot about how you're born where you are born and you you don't have a choice in that, but you do have a choice in where you live. And so even though he claims Taiwan and China as part of his cultural heritage and legacy, he is a proud New Yorker. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I read anything about his like, politics or things of that nature i, I think he keeps uh, a lot of that to himself and i i think yeah. you know it's either there on the screen you see it and you you can interpret it however you want i i mean I, it seems pretty clearly more towards the liberal he, side but he hates gays yeah. he hates totally gays. totally do. i mean if you only saw taking woodstock you'd think so but uh, <laughs> no sorry that's, i that's, did watch taking woodstock that's okay. uh that's <laughs> but um but yeah like i i think we we talked about this before, you know, when we did Dolly Parton, where it's like some people don't talk politics, but when they're an artist, you got to infer yeah. you got it. Like they're yeah. telling you in everything that they do. And so, yeah, I, I yeah, totally. Um, I think this is a good time for us then to get into our reviews. I'm all for it. <laughs> Should we do one stars or five stars first? Let's start with our one star reviews. 
Manish, you know how this works, hon. You are our guest of honor, so you get to crack us open. What is your one-star review? Um, I think it's, yeah, it's, I think it's taking one stock. I just find the video to be such so dull, and it's just so, like, it's so funny. It's such a non-movie. It's so funny to hear you say, I, <laughs> in my little, little tiny brain, I would much rather watch Taking Woodstock than The Ice Storm. I thought The Ice Storm was so fucking boring. <laughs> How dare you? But anyways. But, but I'm trash, and I'm taking your moment, Manish, so please go ahead. No, no, no. You're, uh, I love that. that. That's really funny. Um, I think, like, yeah, for, for me, Taking Woodstock is so just, like, it doesn't feel that personal to him. It feels so, like, um, uninteresting. You know, I think what... He's one of those filmmakers for me that even if the movies are bad, I still think they're interesting. I still think he's doing something kind of cool there. Um, so I think taking Woodstock um, with a special shout out to Ride with the Devil, which is not... I mean, I think that movie's more interesting than taking Woodstock. Taking Woodstock to me is just a, like... It's such a, like, non-entity. Like, <laughs> it's such a, like... It's such a waste of time. Well, that's... I mean, I think, uh, yeah. you know, I think the, what separates them is that, you know ride with the devil has a point of view it may not yeah. be a good point of view or particularly interesting point of view but i agree with you i don't think taking woodstock has i don't think it has anything to say about anything oh man i remember this hill remember remember or like vietnam flashback remember i remember remember man feel like the movie goes out of its way to constantly have a lack of point of view one of my least favorite scenes was uh um liam schreiber's character who i i guess you would say is maybe trans but like in the presented in the movie is just a a, a man who likes to live as a, likes to dress as a woman and there's a moment where dimitri martin asks him like does my father know what you are and he responds with baby i know what i am and it feels like such screenwriting 101 because yeah, the movie yeah. never engages with that afterwards. It's just like, okay, well, it's well, just yeah. Leah Schreiber in a dress. Great. And, like, you mentioned earlier that this could count as, like, a queener movie for Ang Lee. But, like, I guess, yeah, I mean, having a you know a trans character or what have you, yeah, that makes it queer. But, like, Dimitri Martin's character, like, is gay but not, yeah. like... It's so like everything. Everything that's like cool about this movie that could that gets brought up or like interesting or thematically refreshing gets abandoned. And uh, I think like yeah, I think the fact that this is the last movie that James Sheamus was involved in is so telling of the fact that like I just don't think there's any of that passion there that they had in the '90s and 2000s. Yeah. What's wild is I'm pretty sure, and I don't have it in front of me, so I could be very fucking wrong. Um, I think I like read somewhere that. Ang Lee considers taking Woodstock as his gayest movie. <laughs> Shut up. That is no. I refuse to believe he said that. Yeah, I, I, there's a. I, I know for a fact because I did read uh, in an interview magazine. Liv Shriver interviews Ang Lee, and there's like la 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 laling, and they love the movie. Um, I don't know if he says it there, but I and I can't find it, and I wish I could. But like, I am a less aggressively anti this movie. I think you know. I think the movie is just about like this guy who clearly is trying to break away from his crazy fucking parents who have shackled him to this like place and is like liberating from, you know, he's taking the, the Woodstock queer liberation, all that to himself and like trying to break free from it. And so it feels less like Manishi said, like they don't even fucking go to Woodstock. And I think that's kind of the point though. Like, <laughs> you know, he's like, he's, he's never like, in the movie, he says, I'm the only one here having 
breakfast with my fucking parents while they're getting high and like fucked up over at Woodstock. Um, I don't think it's great. Um, but you know, I, I have yeah. a, I have a question for you then, and this is not meant to be a gotcha question. And if you, you don't have an answer, that's totally fine. Then, uh, what's keeping him there? What's other than like, cause he, like in the end it's revealed that his mother's been keeping like stashing away money and he's put so much of his life savings into keeping this hotel that they're running. That's just never, you know, breaking even. And, I know it's familial responsibility is the easy answer, but like, other than that, like what is keeping him there? Because I never, but also that might just be Dimitri Martin's like lack of a performance. That's just, yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it's like what kept, you know, uh, Aang from like doing what he wanted to do. Right. It's just like, you kind of have to like stop being a little bitch and do it. Um, <laughs> I wish like, that was the tagline of the movie. I, I mean, the movie would be at least 5% better if that was the tagline of the movie. <laughs> I mean, like all those things, it's just like, you know, it's like Jack and Ennis talking to each other, like yeah. bitch, let's just do it. The thing. And, and, uh, it's like, it's, yeah, it's like cultural societal, whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to bat for this movie. It's fine. It's very fine for me. Um, but um, special shout out to Ride with Devil because that is my one star review. God, it took me like two days to get through this movie. It, um, <laughs> and it, there were four it, days in between those two days. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I still I, and I still didn't know what the fuck that movie's about. It's so funny because yeah, I had a full like breakdown of like, oh my god, Tobey Maguire. We really thought like he had to be at everything. Um, it's it's a Western movie that is like about like, what if we like heard about what happened to the people in the South and like the soldiers in the South? It's like a weirdly brutal movie. Um, and it wants, I guess, to be sympathetic to these characters. I'm like, why, 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 why? Even like. Jules character is like really fucking racist and I think Jules actually pretty decent in it like you know she it's not like oh there she is juuling about um but like it, yeah and like you said the skeet Ulrich of it all you know it is gorgeous and I bet it took a lot of fucking work because there's huge battles tons of people but like the storyline is just what and where and why uh <laughs> Like, and it opens, the movie opens up with this card. It's like, during the Civil War, there are people on this side and that side, but there is nowhere more dangerous to be than in the middle. And I'm like, okay. But clearly, these bushwhackers or jayhawkers, where the fuck, they're not in the middle. They have chosen a side. Yeah. <laughs> they are pro, like, slavery. They are pro, you know, I, I don't understand, like, how they're, they're trying to make us feel like these are people who are just caught in the middle of this war that has nothing to do with them. It's like, no, it has exactly everything to do with them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I thought it was boring as fuck. <laughs> You're both missed here, your mother. Sounds like my mother. What a woman does. One mother's very much like another. Number one thing, her boys will kill you if they can. My one-star review is something that you, neither of you have mentioned, uh, though I do agree with both of your assessments of your one-star reviews. Um, and mine is Gemini Man. And it's unfortunate to, to pick his like latest film, but he does have more stuff coming, so it's not like he's done. But uh, I think 
Gemini Man is fully a reaction to the fact that Billy Lynn didn't hit. Because uh, I remember the press tour for Billy Lynn was a lot of him being like, you know, you don't have to make an action movie to show off this new technology and you don't have to, you can do it with a drama. And, and man, was he like, fine, I'll give you your action movie. And <laughs> it still wasn't great. And I, I think I agree with you, Manish. I think there's a lot of interesting themes about generational stuff and childhood and, and having to deal with a, a toxic parent versus a, a loving, you know, father son relationship. Uh, but I just don't think it's I think a lot of that stuff was added by Ang Lee. I think by his mere presence, you know, it gets put in. But I think that yeah. script is just a, a 90s script and just never gets over it. I think the chemistry is fully lacking. I don't think there's as many weird um, tricks as Billy Lynn had, which I, I, I for a tricky movie that says something. But one of the things that really annoyed me in Billy Lynn's long halftime walk was uh, there's a lot of direct address in that movie. And what I mean by that is you have characters staring down the barrel of the camera, directly looking at you in the audience. And I get what he was trying to do by that, which is create a sense of realism. And sometimes that works. You have, you know, great Errol Morris, a uh, documentary filmmaker who created the Interatron camera, where he wants you to look directly at it. So you, I think when you're doing a drama film, all it does is sit there and remind you that you're watching a movie. I think it doesn't invite you to. <laughs> that being said, that doesn't necessarily happen in Gemini Man. Instead, in Gemini Man, the big trick is uh, plastic face young Will Smith. This works. It works occasionally. But then there's other scenes where I'm just like, what is happening? Why is Max Hedrum in this movie? Why are we I doing this? I think it works. It works, I think, well in like shadowy yes. dark of night yeah. moments yeah, yeah it's it's clearly not good when like college clone comes out <laughs> in the middle of the day and it's like oh that is a droid <laughs> sir i it's funny i saw this movie originally on a plane to mexico just last year and the thing i remembered liking the most about it was the free tequila and mm. um so i wasn't gonna rewatch it and i was like no i i to give it its due I liked it even less this time. I, I just, wow. it just didn't do it for me. And um, I also noticed weirdly enough, and I didn't watch it with headphones this time though. I did the first time. So maybe it was the tequila blocking me, but they <laughs> used some very strange voice sweetening on Will Smith for the younger version of Will Smith to make him sound more like fresh Princey Spry. Will Smith. And I was just mm. like, Will Smith isn't that old. Like we, we don't, <laughs> we don't need this guys. Like, it's not like, not like when Cicely Tyson does Miss Jane Pittman and she talks right. like this, you know, like that. Yeah, yeah. It's still his voice. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It, it just didn't do much for me, uh, unfortunately. And I really like that cast. Uh, I just don't think it, it pulled together. How many more of me are running around out there? There's only one you, Junior. He was a weapon. You're my son. I love you. As much as any father ever loved any kid. Also, what happened to Clive Owen? Like he, oh my God, he, true. he looks so bad in that movie. And I'm, I think part of it is purposeful. I think part of it is like he's haggard and he's evil. But I was just like, baby, your face. Oh. Clive Owen playing like bad evil daddy. Yeah, <laughs> bad evil science daddy. <laughs> it's on with my business his, like, cards. Uh, yeah, with his army of Will Smiths. Um, all good picks. Uh, let's get into our five stars. Mm-hmm. 
Manish, what are you going with? So this is really tough because I have like five that I want to pick. I think I'm going to go with Sense and Sensibility for my official pick, uh, just because it's like, um, yeah, I mean, I've seen that movie like so many times. I think it's like one of his best efforts as filmmaking. I think it's such a, it's such a miracle of a movie in that like all these people came together to make it and it could only be made, um, from these specific people. And, uh, you know, you got Kate Winslet, you got Alan Rickman, you got, like, I mean, the cast alone is out of this world, and just, like, it's so funny, and it's so, like, well-directed. Um, it's, you know, he didn't get an Oscar nomination for it, which, which is, is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also not crazy, because it was the 90s. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I think, like, I don't know, I was coming in here being, like, Life of Pi is going to be my pick, and, you know, Life of Pi is, like you know, my, my second five-star review, but I think that sensibility is just such a, like, it's a perfect movie. It's so fun to watch, but it's so, like, well-made, too. It's a perfect movie, in my opinion. That's all I can really say. Did he tell you that he loved you? Yes. No. Never absolutely. It was every day implied, but never declared. Sometimes I thought it had been, but it never was. He's broken no vow. Broken faith with all of us. He made us all believe he loved you. He did. He did. Excellent pick, though. Um, my pick is going to be um, 1994's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. I just think that there so is good. something about this movie that is so luscious and rich in a very human, non-spectacular way. Uh, from the opening scene of this father making all this food and 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 then you are introduced to these three daughters who are all very distinctive have these very specific relationships and um goals i mean this movie is like you know what do you think manish is this a rom-com would you dare to say that this movie is a rom-com i i think so it's like one of those like um it's one of those rom-coms that is just it's like has such a like different structure right but you have four romantic comedy plots in there <laughs> yes you know honestly it's like, like the youngest daughter i think has the most rom-commy um yeah. storyline where she's you know talking to this guy who's like being her rebuffed that, by yeah. her her best friend um and their romance starts we have the middle daughter who is kind of like the go-getter um was kind of i don't know she was the one who was maybe going to follow in her, the steps of her father, but he wanted her to be a business lady. And she's, you know, very business daughter. <laughs> and then the older daughter, who's like a Christian yeah. and a teacher <laughs> and who had her heart broken. And just navigating all... Because basically, yeah, it's all these three love lives. And then on top of that, their father, who is widowed, and his like kind of weird... <laughs> like the gagarini and i'm not gonna spoil it even so though it's so old but it's so like yeah and then when the the grandma character comes and faints and passes out it's just so funny. so funny it's so good i love the relationship between um the neighbor's young daughter and uh the main character he's like he goes and takes lunch to her every day at school and all the kids just like fucking lose their shit for um his food i even love the relationship between um, the father and like the uncle character who tastes the food for him because he's losing his taste buds and can't taste anymore. Um, yeah, it's just so richly layered, and I and it carries the ethos that I love. I mean, because I, I love pushing hands, I love the wedding banquet, and this kind of carries that feeling forward, but 
kind of like turns it all the way up because they're balancing so many storylines between all the daughters. And honestly, the movie is so surprising because it and every one moment when you're like, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen. It's <laughs> yeah. just, it, it, it turns the entire thing on its head and it's so well done. And with such a loving, a sensitive touch that you keep seeing later in his career. Um, but it's just beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, no notes uh, <laughs> would watch again. <laughs> uh, and, and like I said earlier, I think it's got all of the shades of the director that he's eventually going to become and, and like really starting that experimentation with um, finding a way to connect the camera directly to the heart of the audience. I just thought of yeah. that, guys. I just want you to know. That's beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, Manish, I'm going to say that you're going to win the poll this week, or other is, because my five-star review is 2007's Lust Caution. Uh, I don't think this is a conventional pick by any means, but I truly think this is... The, the height of his powers. And I love the fact that it is not an American movie, that it is very much him working in a realm that is that he doesn't have to worry about American audiences and that he's not necessarily interested in, you know, because, you know, one of my things about Life of Pi, which I do like, and so I'm not being mean, you know, I'm just being a fan who is critical, is the creation of a white character, the journalist, for the audience to have representation and to, and mm. I hate that. I do. And I, no offense to Rafe Spall, I think he's fine in it, but it just feels like please pay attention white people i think less caution <laughs> misuses all of that and is just like you either get it or you don't it's a very long film it's challenging as louis mentioned before it's about this young woman who becomes uh, immersed in this life of a spy after she joins a political theater group in college they decide that they're going to uh, execute Tony Lung's character who they're e- like y'all want to murder yeah. after we ra- after a rap party yeah, exactly <laughs> Tony Lung's character is a Chinese man but he's working with the Japanese occupiers at the time um, this movie's set in two different time periods I think you you know you sort of see that in a lot of his work too the Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon thing I said to you earlier Manish when we were talking that one of the things I love about Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is the structure is so not conventional because it yeah, there's a yeah. giant flashback in the middle of the movie. This movie, at least yeah. a third of the movie, takes place in the past. I thought the movie was over when that finishes. I was like, oh, they didn't do the thing and now they have to live with what they've done. And then I was like, oh shit, there's a lot more nope. movie left. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, years later, uh, she gets back into the game. She's going to try and seduce Tony Lung again and have him executed their relationship gets really complicated uh, trigger warning he sexually assaults her which actually leads to a very physical sexual relationship between them um she starts to fall for him and i don't want to spoil the ending but it uh, you know <laughs> let me tell you it's not gonna end happily um mm-hmm. i think this movie is kind of a downer i don't mind it uh i think it's really honest i think it's really beautiful i think uh that tang wei gives an amazing performance. I'm shocked she wasn't nominated for anything. Just beautiful, sumptuous film and really is lust and caution. Uh, Also, we haven't mentioned it. Lust caution is a pun uh, because the two characters for lust and caution um, are very similar or can be read to as colorful ring. And the movie Mm. really hangs on a ring at the end of the movie. Uh, So, yeah, I and also the story's kind of cyclical in a way. So yeah, I I, I just think it's perfection all around, no pun intended. And you said 
It's kind of a downer. Five stars. Done. <laughs> I was like, can I be sadder? Yes, I can. Five stars. I think that is a that's a genius pick uh, because I think Less Caution is so underseen uh, because of the length and because I think it's reputation. Like I remember, like I mean, I was trying to read reviews of it uh, from that time when it came out, and all I did was talk about the sex scenes. But this movie is so much more than that. I mean, the sex Way scenes more. are very powerful. Um, and very narratively yeah. consistent, but it's such a great movie. I can't imagine yeah. this movie without it being no. as graphic as it is. And once again, on both fronts, on both, like it yeah. needs the violence, it needs the sexuality because the, like everything hinges. It raises on the it. stakes. Yeah. It raises. It makes it so. Uh, you know, I think the most uh, powerful scene is when like, you know this is a, a woman who has given up her life and her body and her spirit and her soul to this mission. And she's pleading with her, you know, fucking group, whatever the fuck. And she's like, when are you going to do this? I, there are times where I'm in bed with him and I'm waiting. Is, is this the day that you're going to come in and blast his brains all over me? Yeah. Please just get it done with. And, and she's, it's so powerful because she's, she says, it's not just about the fucking it's, he's infecting me every day more and more. And it's so brutal. Um, yeah, it's it's it, you need that. The, he, we as an audience need to see that, and um, it's it's so effective. It doesn't feel exploitative or anything like that. Um, yeah, love this movie. Great, great pick, Kevin. Thank you. I, I just want to point out that we're all queer and none of us picked Brokeback I know, Mountain. I know. I know. I, I think everybody, you know, we waxed politically about that, but I think everybody would have thought that we would have come to that decision. Hey, listen, great movie. Love it. Yeah. yeah. But like, we're, yeah, we're honest. I mean, you know? Here's yeah. the thing, though. Like, Life of Pi, excellent movie. Brooklyn Mountain, excellent. Yeah. Crouching Tiger, excellent. Like, there are very few misfires in the canon. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we literally, like, now in this moment of us looking back of like, oh, what else did we like? Well, hon, what did we not like? Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of like, this is a man who fully painted with all the colors of the wind. And, <laughs> and and it's like it's so good and it's so good i think you know it's a disservice if i don't mention that like lots of people who've worked with him say he's a very um silent director as well yeah. he doesn't you know he kind of like lets people do the work and he tells them one thing and, it, and like you mentioned gavin he's not used to like a lot of like questions he's like and that's kind of also why he was able to um get into directing because you know he didn't have the, the there was a language barrier there um and and so he yeah it's it's so funny when people keep asking him he's like oh, i'm just always tired okay first of all i'm always tired <laughs> i don't know what i'm doing i just want to i just i'm curious i want to keep learning i want to do whatever i want to do and i'm not going to be like locked into any kind of fucking like box uh, which i think is really fucking cool and looking at this like his filmography it's just like damn he's a master at what he does. Yeah, I think it's a, it's very hard to get this far in your career and be this consistent too as well. Mm-hmm. And like honestly, you know, if he wants to keep experimenting, I, I, he's already made so many records for himself. And you know, he's the first person to shoot in 120 frames, and to, you know, he's the first non-white person to get best director. It's you know, it's just it's just a career of successes. And like, yeah, yeah I think I think you put it so masterfully when you say, you know, what didn't we like? Yeah. So let's do a little mixed reviews review, why don't we? Excellent. My one-star review was 2019's Gemini Man. 
My one-star review is 1999's Ride with Devil. My one-star review was 2009's Taking Woodstock. And my five-star review was 2007's Lust Caution. My five-star review was 1994's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. My five-star review was 1995's Sense and Sensibility. Ugh, what a trio. Excellent. So now we're in our fast forward and we know the the next big thing, the thing that like everybody's been waiting for is Ang Lee has been attached to this adaptation of Thrill in Manila, which is, you know, it's the, the big boxing match between Muhammad Ali. Uh, there's been so many documentaries made about this. And I, I don't know. I, I'm excited for it. I, you know, it was Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. It took place in 1975. I think, the fact that Ang Lee is so experimental, I'm curious as to what it's going to look like, especially since, you know, footage of that boxing match, we basically only have as like, as on film. And so right. Ang Lee sort of pushed himself into a realm where he's doing things that don't look like film necessarily anymore. And I, yeah. I'm curious, like how that's going to play out and how that's going to work. And obviously it's going to be a very emotional movie <laughs> and that's what yeah. we expect from him. So I just can't wait for them to kiss, you know. <laughs> I mean, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. <laughs> Joe Frazier. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. Like, if you Google just like Angley interview, all the like latest things he talks about. I mean, it's a lot of Ge- Gemini Man stuff and talking about how he's learned his lessons from Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. He's still working on the technology to make it right and better, and he still believes in it. Um, and then we all know how Gemini Man came and went. Um, but he still is like talking about we need to be thinking about the future yeah. of filmmaking and movie making. And it can't be we can't continue it now. And he, he's a big proponent of like we have to advocate and save going out to the theater and whatever it takes to move the medium uh, to get people into seats in the theater. Like we need to keep doing that. So we can't just keep making movies that are going to like, you know, go to HBO and just whatever. Um, it's funny. I found an interview with him that was actually done during the pandemic. And unfortunately, I'm going to put a clip in here, but it's uh, for a man that's like very good on technology, clearly not using a microphone over a Zoom call. But <laughs> but he said something really um, interesting because he's talking to a film student and she asked about the future of a film. And he's like, I think the pandemic's going to push everything 10 years ahead. Even after the pandemic, we'll see how it makes so you don't go to uh, Canada to shoot Brooklyn Mountains. <laughs> if you shoot that, uh, like in this room, yeah. uh, like we're communicating with each other so, and we put different backgrounds in, and we pretend we're, no, movies pretending. If the virtual, the animation and the virtual environment that provided to the filmmakers is convenient enough, is realistic enough, then they really free filmmakers from restriction. He's such a futurist that his brain is always pushing it to the next, you know, what is the next stage? Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, I would love for him to do a movie like Last Caution again, or, you know, um, Brokeback or Ice Storm, any of these, I would love that. Um, But on the other hand, I'm like, you know, if someone is going to be the like champion of high frame rate and all this digital CGI stuff, like, I'm glad it's Ang Lee who actually can 
bring in the emotional part of it and can craft these stories that are more thematically interesting. I mean, I think there's, I mean, James Cameron, get fucked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I I mean, Avatar 2, can't wait. You know, love the Avatar franchise. Do you? But um, no, really? (laughs) Okay. That's a whole other thing we can get into. Uh, But um, I think that like, you know, ain't like, I think as as much as Billy Lynn and Gemini Man are kind of like whiffs with his career, like I think he's still doing things in those movies that are a little bit more interesting than you know more like wrote action director could do. Like you know, imagine like Michael Bay getting keys to like high frame rate technology. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't want, I don't want to see like a three hour robot movie, um, but I do want to see you know Thrill in Manila because I think that you know, who knows what what that's going to look like. And um, it's just, you know, he's someone who's, like, thinking about it beyond just, like, you know, getting people. I mean, like, he's thinking about it beyond just, like, hey, we have to, you know, get, give a surcharge at AMC. Like, he wants to think about right. this in terms of, like, the long the long game of it. And, you know, and I think he's right that, like, there is going to be an element of, like, having to bring people to the theaters after the pandemic uh, because... We're also used now to, you know, watching something at whatever time right. and whenever we want. Right. I mean, this is the guy that did the impossible when he made Life of Pi. And so, like, you're yeah. right. Like, if someone is going to get it done, it's going to be him. Um, and I think, you know, he he's funny. He's, he always says, he's like, I'm always scared of doing the same thing over and over. So I don't think we're going to get another Lost Caution. I don't think we're going to get another Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. I think he's, like, done the thing and he's moving on to, like, whatever's next for him. And so I I understand why he's, like... No one's made a movie with two Will Smiths before. How about <laughs> I do that? No one had. You know? <laughs> right. And so I think he's just really always interested in like, you know, Thrill in Manila, you know, might sound like a very generic uh, biopic, but knowing Ang Lee, there is going to be something about this movie that is going to like really turn it inside out. Um, so it's not just because like on, the, on paper, like reading the, the log line right now, it's like it's giving me, you know, the Regina King one night in Miami going back type thing but knowing Ang Lee it's going to be some fucking weird twist on the story and I, I have no doubt that eventually he'll get high frame rate and all this stuff right right you know like if what did have Bill and didn't have a Gemini man it might not even happen with this movie but like eventually something will click and it'll be what he envisions it to be yeah totally um, my only thing I want to add is I would love to see him write again. And, um, yeah. and and that's not to take away from, I mean, he's made many, many, a great film that he hasn't written, but I, especially like now he has adult children, like, you, you know, a lot of his movies, as you mentioned earlier, they have that, that theme of families, but they're like young families. And maybe it's, you know, it's really not until eat, drink, man, woman that he has like adult, but I would love to see that perspective now on what it's sort of like for him and, and it'd be really personal. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the last thing I want to say is just this is a man who didn't really get started. It, you know, his, his success um, well into his 30s, um, you know, and I think it's easy to forget. You know, I, I don't know when I was reading this stuff and I, I had this like very uh, cement kind of idea of who Ang Lee was and successful, you know, genius. But it wasn't always that way. And, you know, I'm in my early thirties, <laughs> um, but <laughs> sometimes it feels like, God, I, if I, if only I had done this, you know, in my twenties and when people are doing, you know, and in, in, in Hollywood now or whatever, but this is a man who's at the top of his fucking game, did it all and didn't did it again. <laughs> um, 
And he didn't start until he was 36. And, and truly what it took was the support of his family, his loving wife, and, you know, believing in himself. He was the one who entered into that contest in Taiwan, you know, um, and doing the work. Even when he had no one behind him, no studio backers, no Hollywood, he had the screenplays that he had done and submitted them. Um, and from there was able to just like run wild into, and, and, and truly connecting with other artists, you know, when Emma Thompson saw that, that line in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and the line that she had written was the same thing. It's just kind of like making that connections with your art. I, I just love that so much. And I think it's a really good um, message just that like, you know, it's never too late to do the fucking thing, um, which I think is a really good um, moral. I agree. Totally. I, I Something to take away. <laughs> I think that wraps up <laughs> Ang Lee perfectly. I'm so glad you brought this topic to us, Manish, because he's so deserved to like look at his career and, and analyze and, and see all the things he's done and how inspiring he truly is. Manish, you're really fantastic and, and people should follow you online, but I'm going to give you a moment to uh, plug, your, plug your shit. Yeah, plug your shit. Tell us where we can find you and where we can listen to you. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you both so, so much for having me on to talk about, I think, one of my favorite topics. I love Ang Lee, and I'm so, so glad to be here and so appreciative um, for this opportunity. And so it's it's exciting. This is so much fun. I had a great time. I love your podcast. I listen to it every week. Oh, Stop thank it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at themanish89. That's T-H-E-M-A-N-I-S-H-8-9. Also, I host two podcasts. One is... IPOD2BU, which you can find at IPOD2BU on Twitter. I also co-host uh, Queer Now, which is about queer cinema with Dave Giannini. You can find that at QueerNowPod. And uh, yeah, like Gavin said, I write here and there every now and then. So best place to find my stuff is on Twitter. Yeah, and you can listen to our episodes of IPOD2BU. I talk about <laughs> Neverman Kiss is so iconic. And I had so much fun recording the episode with you. Um, and Gavin, you talked about, um, but I'm a cheerleader, but I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. You're sick. You love queer in the space. I, I popped Manish's queer cherry on his, on his. That's true. Yeah. Podcast. Uh, both, yeah. I love doing the episodes with, with the two of you. So you guys are a wonderful guest. Thank you. Well, you're a great Thank guest. You. We're just going <laughs> to compliment each other into oblivion. Uh, <laughs> I love but if you did enjoy listening to this episode, you can always find us online. We're on Twitter at, at the mixed reviews. We're on Facebook. Just type in the next reviews. If you want to email us, you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We're looking at you, Champagne Urbana. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram. Just type in the underscore mix underscore reviews. And if you want to listen to us as you just did throughout this entire episode, you can listen to us on a plethora of podcast apps. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google audible amazon we're everywhere and if you do listen to us on apple Podcasts, feel free to stop by leave us a rating and review make it a nice little five stars and we'll read it on the show yeah compare us to a beautiful parisian piscine <laughs> that's us <laughs> that's us uh but thank you guys and we will see you in two weeks bye bye